Isaiah chapter 60, starting from verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The next passage comes from Revelation. Chapter 3, starting from verse 7. Revelation chapter 3. Starting from verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks for that reading, Marilyn. A big warm welcome to everyone here this morning. My name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church. Uh, And if this is your first time here, uh, a big warm welcome to you as well. Uh, Good to see lots of familiar faces and returning faces uh, here among us as well. Another big plug for the Easter Sunday uh, gathering. It's really nice to have roughly 40-ish, 50 seats here. But can you imagine the Sunday that we gather together and there will be over roughly around 300 people uh, in one space? Uh, I'm so looking forward to that day. Uh, so please register early for that sle.church forward slash forward slash Easter uh, to register your place there as well. 
Um, now, if this is your first time, uh, let me briefly explain what we're going to be doing here uh, in this moment. Uh, we're going to be going through that passage that we've just read in Revelation, so the, to the church, to Philadelphia. Uh, my job today is to walk us through that passage verse by verse, uh, to see what's going on in the details, to understand what's going on, and in general, to understand what Jesus is saying to the church. And so if this is your first time, um, we hope that you'll uh, get lots out of the message uh, and be encouraged by it, and to, even to be encouraged to think about uh, more about who Jesus is um, uh, today. Uh, don't forget, after the service, there may, you know, there may uh, be questions that uh, arise from that. Uh, after the service today, there's a time of Q&A, uh, about 10-ish minutes or so, so we'll finish the service. There'll be some discussion questions, uh, but feel free to uh, come and speak to me or to use the uh, YouTube uh, comments section uh, to ask any particular questions as well. For now, let me pray, and let me ask God to bless us as we read this word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again that you are a God who speaks. You reveal yourself and you speak through your Son. And so we pray this morning that you'd bless us to have ears to hear, to hear what, this, what is said and to respond. We ask for your Spirit's help in this. We also ask that your Spirit will help me to preach clearly and faithfully from this as I ought. For we ask these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. The world has changed. It is not what it used to be. And if we are not ready, it will chew us up and spit us out, leaving us doubting whether Jesus is worth the cost of following him. See, I grew up in a Buddhist home. I became a Christian at the age of 20 uh, during my university days. And at that time, when I became a Christian, as I told my friends uh, that I had become a Christian, most of my friends just weren't really that bothered. Some were curious, one or two had stronger words to say, but on the whole, it felt like a lot of my friends were just indifferent, a bit meh. Well, you know, Christianity was just another option among many. But the world has changed. It is not like that anymore. In his great book, Being the Bad Guys, Stephen McAlpine does an insightful job of clarifying what most Christians have been feeling for a while, that this world has changed. See, Christianity is no longer just another option among many. It's now wrong. It's the problem. Most of us can relate to that. I mean, we've had those conversations about our faith that didn't go well or didn't finish well. We've overheard the discussion with our colleagues or our friends expressing their anger over Christian views. We've switched on the TV and heard the journalists and the hosts taking aim at biblical ethics. And for many of us who have been Christians for a while, we may have noticed that this change happened very quickly. See, Christians went from being the good guys, the ones who were viewed generally positively, to becoming this kind of neutral oddball, you know, kind of like that weird person at the party. You know they're there, but you, you don't mind it, but you do make, kind of make fun of them. That's when I became a Christian. That's what Christianity was like. So now becoming the bad guys. We've gone from to, uh, being good guys to being considered dangerous. Now, to his credit, the book uh, doesn't just scream, whoa, are we, and lament that Christians are not taken seriously anymore. It is actually a very helpful book and helpfully engaging with these issues. But after reading the introduction uh, in the introductory chapters, he got me thinking about the church in Philadelphia that we're looking at today. And how the church in Philadelphia was also living in this world, this world which saw Christians as the bad guys. 
It got me thinking about how Philadelphia were handling the situation. And in general, it looks like they were going well. They were holding up and persevering. But in a pressure-packed situation like this, it's not hard to imagine doubts that would start to creep in. Doubts that Jesus was worth following. Is he really worth following? Doubts whether it would just be easier to, to compromise a little. Don't, don't stick so hard with Jesus. Keep your head down. Don't stick your neck out. Maybe even offer up fake worship to Caesar. You know, it's not really real. You, you know, God knows your heart. And just get on with life. Maybe just shut your mouth and you won't get into trouble. Would that be worth it? Well, today Jesus speaks to a church going through something similar to our own situation. He speaks to a church which is under fire, needing to hold on and press on in the faith. And what Jesus says to them is so important for us to hear today as well, because Jesus will encourage these bad guys in their situation, and he'll encourage them to see what their eternal situation is really like. But first, Jesus introduces himself. Now, as with previous weeks, Jesus' introduction is timely. It's purposefully relating to the church spoken to. But as we read through it, maybe this time the introduction of Jesus feels a little bit confusing as to what it all means. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please keep it there to Revelation 3. And we're going to reread verses 7 and the first half of 8. So have a look at verse 7 with me. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, let's break this down a little bit. First, Jesus says that he is the Holy One. Now, over the last few weeks, I've led a number of Bible studies on this passage, and I've asked the same question. What does the word holy mean? And most people in response say that the word holy means to be set apart. That's true to an extent. But the word holy means so much more than just being set apart. So here's a quote from theologian Bruce Ware. To say that God is holy is to say that he is eternally separate and distinct from all impurity. The term holiness in Hebrew, Kadesh, has the notion of separation, of uniqueness, of one of a kindness, as it were. See, when the prophet Isaiah gets taken into the throne room and he hears the angels before God cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They are not yelling out, Set apart, set apart, set apart is God. They are amplifying the utter uniqueness and the purity of purities and the one of a kindness of God. When Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One, well, he's putting himself up on the same level. He is saying that he is also utterly unique, totally pure, and a one of a kind. Next, Jesus introduces himself as the True One. Now, true in what sense? True in the sense that he speaks truth? Yes, that's true, right? In Jesus, there can be no lie found. There is no lie on his lips and no lie in his character. But Jesus is also true in the sense that he is the one that everyone in the Old Testament was waiting for. There are a number of guys prior to Jesus who Israel looked to and thought, oh, maybe he's going to be the Messiah. But no, 
Jesus is the true one who fulfills all of the hopes and the expectations in the Old Testament. He was the one who was prophesied. He is the Messiah King who would come and save. Jesus is the true one. And then finally, Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, and he has set before the Philadelphian church an open door that no one is able to shut. Whew, there's a lot of opening and closing doors there, right? If he was in an Asian house, he would be scolded because, you know, all the air conditioning is being wasted. So what's going on with this? The keys of David is a callback. It's a callback to Isaiah 22, 22. Right? You can look that up a bit later. Isaiah 22, 22. Easy to remember. And in that passage there, God promises to an Israelite king the same thing, the keys of David. Now, the effect of this promise is that this Israelite king will have all authority. Same, same deal. He'll be able to open doors and no one can shut them. He'll be able to shut doors and no one can open them. Right? The idea of having the keys of David is that he will have God's authority behind him. So when Jesus says, I have the keys of David, he's saying he has all God's authority behind him. So in these opening few verses, Jesus introduces himself as the holy one, the utterly unique and pure God, the true one, the one who speaks truth and the one who, is the, who fulfills all Old Testament expectations and hopes, and the one who holds the keys of David, the one with immense authority and power. So what does this introduction have to do with the church? How would it bring them comfort and hope? Philadelphia. <clears throat> what do you think of when you, when that, when you hear that word? I, I don't know why over the last few weeks everyone keeps thinking of, thinking of the Philadelphia cream cheese. Um, I don't think of Philadelphia cream cheese. I think of the city of Philadelphia, which literally means the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Right? The city of brotherly love. But here, the city of brotherly love is not showing much love to the church. By the time John wrote this letter, the city was steeped. It was saturated in the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar as a god. For those who don't know what the imperial cult is, uh, roughly in the, in the centuries leading up to uh, this period here that John was writing to, uh, there were a number of moves made by the Caesars to be worshipped as a god. And it took the biggest turn with Caesar Augustus, who took over from Julius Caesar, you know, the guy who got stabbed in the back and apparently has a salad named after him. Um, so Julius Caesar died and his, um, his kind of adopted son Augustus took over. Now Augustus had some uh, coins minted of him with his uh, profile on it. And they read very clearly, Caesar Augustus, son of a god. Right? Treating Julius Caesar as a god elevating himself as the son of a god. And since that time, every Caesar afterwards, would, every emperor afterwards would be worshipped as a god. So by this time here, Philadelphia, by the time that John is writing to Philadelphia, the, the imperial cult has swept through every city across the Roman Empire, and there is massive pressure to participate in it. But there's also a few other things probably going on in the background as well uh, that Jesus tells his church that he knows about. So have a look at the second half of verse 8. Verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so with all this is going on, all this stuff going on in the background, Jesus knew that the church in Philadelphia had little power. Perhaps they were a small church. 
but they definitely didn't have any cultural capital or influence, right? The Philadelphian church was not high on everyone's list of authority, right? When the town was making a decision, they didn't turn to the church and go, what do you guys think? Now, maybe they were also labeled the bad guys as well, but it's clear that they were in the minority, and you know that when you're in the minority, you're always at the mercy of the majority. But despite their lack of authority and influence, their little power, this church was doing well. There at the end of verse 8, Jesus knows that they have been faithful to him. They have kept his word. They have not denied his name. See, in spite of the opposition they were facing, there was, this was a church holding fast to Jesus, not compromising their faith, not denying his lordship over their lives. Now, don't gloss over this fact too quickly. Living in this city under the immense pressure that they were most likely feeling, that this church was holding on faithfully is amazing. You see, the pressure they were facing was also from another familiar group. You see them there in verse 9, the Jews. Again, we have this reference to them as the synagogue of Satan. Now, we met these guys last time when we looked at the church in Smyrna. Right? Jews claim to be the people of God. But God's true people are going to be following Jesus, and they're going to be upholding gospel ministry. Since these Jews claimed to be God's people, but they were rejecting Jesus, and they were rejecting gospel ministry, and they were rejecting Christians, well, their claim to be God's people was a lie. They were opposing God's work. And so because of that, they were in partnership with God's chief adversary, Satan. The question, though, is how were the Jews opposing the Christians in Philadelphia. And again, when we look at the actual, uh, this part of the letter, the, the exact details escape us, but I think we can piece together what's going on, especially as we consider the promises Jesus gives later and the introduction of Jesus in the first part. See, Jesus promises them later that they will be pillars in the temple of God. Jesus, in his introduction, keeps making a reference to having an open door for them that no one can shut. So this kind of idea of this open door that no one can shut, them being in the temple and never being put out, I think it's fair that we look at, we we can see or we can uh, conclude that the main issue was that these Jews were shutting the Christians out from the synagogue. They had the door metaphorically and physically closed to them. See, if the imperial cult stuff is going on in the background, And it's handy to know that Jews were excused from participation with the imperial cult. They had an early agreement. They paid a temple tax, and that excused them from worshipping Caesar. Now, early in the church's life, when you look at Acts chapter 18, there was a very crucial decision made by a Roman governor named Gallio, who basically says or concludes that Christians were basically a subsect of Jews. He didn't want to bother with this religious stuff, right? It's all in-house. And so Rome treated Christians as a subsect of Jews. But now it looks like the Jews were beginning to flex their muscles again and make a very clear distinction between themselves and Christians, shutting the door on them, saying, no, they are not like us, maybe even tapping Rome on the shoulder and saying, they are not us, and they need to start worshipping in the imperial cult, putting pressure on them to participate. And if they didn't, Well, there'd be massive social disapproval, 
potentially going out of business and being socially outcast. Intense social disapproval, potential of going out of business, your faith not considered another option among many, but now a problem. Sounds like our world, right? And again, in a world where they were the minority, where there is this intense pressure and opposition to the faith, that the doubts must have been strong. Was Jesus really worth this? Was he really worth the cost of following him? If Jesus is the king, then why does it seem like this earthly king has more power? And so what word does Jesus bring to his church, holding to their faith, perhaps wrestling with their doubts? Have a look at the second half of verse 9. Jesus gives a string of promises, which are nothing short of amazing. The first promise comes in verse 9. Again, the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, were opposing the Christians in Philadelphia, perhaps even sneering at them, saying, you are not the real people of God. And here's what Jesus says and promises in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, uh, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is stunning on a couple of levels. First, it's stunning that Jesus would take the opponents of Christians and make them bow down before them. This is an act of humiliation, an act of judgment on those who oppose Christians. But the humiliation in some ways goes further. They will bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So the Jews may have been claiming, you are not the real people of God. You are not loved by God. We are. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to correct that in front of everyone. No, you are the real people of God and they will know that I have loved you. And second, the language of bowing down comes from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45 and 49 in chapter 60 that we had read out from uh, before us from Marilyn. But the phrasing of verse 9 switches things around. So here's what's going on. When you read Isaiah 45 and 49 and 60 and you see this language of bowing down, it's the Gentiles who come before Israel to bow down. Because of the way the Gentiles have been treating Israel, God will judge Gentiles bring them before Israel, and they will bow down before Israel. But here, Jesus switches that. As a judgment now on these Jews, they will bow down before the Christians. Stunning. The second promise comes in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And because they have been faithful, Jesus will be faithful to them. But what does it mean that he will keep them from the hour of trial that is to come? Now, if you've been around Christian circles for long enough, you'll have heard of or know of this popular strand of theology made popular by the books and movies called Left Behind, right? Now, let me just say very briefly, if your end-time theology has been turned into a movie, it's probably not good. Some believe that Jesus is speaking here of a secret rapture of believers, that at some point in the future, Jesus will come and secretly take Christians out of the world, leaving everyone else behind to suffer through tribulation. 
Let me briefly say, I don't think that's the best reading of this verse, and I don't think that's the best reading of the New Testament and the Bible, for a few reasons. Number one, I think the secret rapture is built on a misreading of the Bible, particularly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Number two, I think the secret rapture theology contradicts the New Testament's emphasis that Christians are to persevere through tribulation, not that they will be plucked out of suffering. A few weeks ago, we read in Smyrna that they were to be faithful even unto death. They had to be faithful through their suffering, not faithful because they are believing Jesus will take them out of it. And third, when we read this, when we read this phrase in verse 10, there's a final mention of those who dwell on the earth right at the end of verse 10. Now, in a number of places in Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 13, chapter 11, verse 10, this phrase is referring to non-believers. So I think the best way to read this is that Jesus is saying he's referring to the final judgment. Jesus promises to keep believers from this hour is a promise that they will be shielded from judgment. Believers will still experience this moment, as with everyone else, but we will not be on the wrong side of Jesus when that happens. And so this second promise in this passage is that when he comes to judge the world, if the church remains faithful, then they will be protected from his judgment. And it's the gospel message after all. Believers will be protected from judgment because Jesus himself has taken their judgment on himself. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment for our sins. He died in our place. So this promise is a promise, a reminder of this gospel truth. The third promise comes in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. A pillar is obviously a crucial structural support in a building, and in particular in the temples. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't immediately strike me as the most exciting promise in the world. Yay, I get to be a pillar. Until you read where the pillar is. Remember that what's going on, and remember what's going on in the background of this church. Remember that the Jews had rejected the Christians. They were shutting them out from the synagogue and effectively shutting them out from God's people, saying, you are not truly God's people. We are God's people. We have God. We have the temple. And here Jesus is saying, they shut you out, but I'm going to bring you in. Remember the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, where it lived. To be in the presence of God was the sweetest desire of any Jew, but only, not any Jew could go in. Only the priests could go in, and only once a year, and only for a short amount of time. So only priests could go into the presence of God once a year, and only for a few minutes if they dared. But you see what Jesus is offering here? Gentiles can come into his presence and stay there always and forever. Jesus is saying, they shut you out, but I have the keys of David, and I am going to open that door, and they can't close it. You will come into the presence of my Father, and you will be a crucial part of that presence, a pillar of the temple, and you will enjoy his presence and my presence 
forever. All your enemies will be gone. All your doubts will melt away when you see your Father face to face. Now, being a pillar doesn't sound so bad now, does it? The final promise is in the second half of verse 12. Uh, read with me again. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the final promise of Jesus here to this church, which is suffering from opposition, this final promise is that Jesus, from Jesus is that you, as a pillar, will be vandalized. You will have graffiti all over you. Right? Jesus will scrawl his name, the name of his Father, all over you, the address of the heavenly city, and his own name as well. Jesus was here. Right? So what's going on? One of my favorite movie franchises of all time is Toy Story. Uh, it's not just a movie franchise for kids. I'm pretty sure I cried in every single movie. Uh, now, one of the major themes that runs through all of these movies is the theme of ownership. How the main character, Woody, is the cowboy, in particular relates to his owner, Andy. Now, the first movie begins with uh, the, a new toy getting introduced to the group of toys that, in Andy's bedroom. The newest, the greatest, the latest Space Ranger, Buzz Lightyear. Uh, Woody is really jealous, of course, because he used to be the favorite toy. But in one pivotal moment in the first movie, Woody realizes that Buzz is not just a flash-in-the-pan toy. He's not just going to be here one day and gone the next. Andy is not going to lose his love for Buzz. And it's this moment when Buzz lifts up his foot and shows that Andy has written his name on him. Now, why is that important? Because Andy does that with all of his toys. And it shows that he owns them. In an even greater way, when Jesus writes the name of his Father and his own name on Christians, it is a sign that he owns them. They belong to him. You have been rejected by the world. You have been rejected by the Jews. But you are mine. The flip side of that white rock that was given to the believers in Pergamum, you know that white rock right there and at the end of the promise, whose, and Jesus' name will be on that rock and it will be given to you, which is another way of saying that Jesus belongs to you. Here is the flip side of that. With the name written on you, Jesus is saying you belong to him. No matter what opposition they were facing, no matter what doubts were creeping into their minds, Jesus makes a promise that if they persevere to the end, if they conquer to the end, then it will be worth it. Eternal life with him, escape from judgment, in his sweet presence forever, never in doubt as to who they belonged to. Jesus knew they were a church of little power, but he also knew their faithfulness. And he will vindicate them one day. But for now, they just need to keep holding on to him. 
They need to conquer, and then everyone will know that they are loved and belong to him eternally. If you joined us today and uh, you're not a believer or if you're not sure, this passage might have sounded really strange to begin with. You know, all this stuff about Jesus and being a pillar with the name written on it. Uh, When you think about it, though, it does make sense because Christians are increasingly seen with suspicion in our world, in our Western world. It can make you wonder whether it's worth sticking to these beliefs, especially when the world looks like it's already moved on to bigger and better things, right? In a lot of ways, that kind of makes Christianity even more believable and unique. Our world seems to be changing truths so quickly, as quickly as it changes outfits. You just need to look at the topic of gender and sex. Our world changed its mind on that in the last 20 years. Completely overturning millennia of human thought. The speed of that change is matched by the energy they will throw behind it to defend that change. And in the face of this kind of pace of changing truths comes Jesus who calls himself the true one. He stands in the middle of it all and says, truth is best seen when you look at me and when you look at my teaching. He's inviting anyone here who's not a believer yet to come and see that he is true, that he is good, and that he is worth following. But like the Philadelphians, I also need to put it plainly before you that believing and following Jesus is going to come with a cost. It's hard. Allegiance to him will increasingly make you the bad guy to the world. But it also comes with these promises. So I want to invite you to find out more about Jesus. I want you to invite you to stick around with us here at SLE Church so we can help you know him better. And I hope that what you'll find is what many in our church have found over the years, that Jesus is the true one who transforms life here and now and into eternity and who is joyfully worth following every hard step of the way. To the rest of the bad guys here at SLE Church, to those who are following Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus, Jesus is encouraging you to hold on, to keep persevering in reading your Bible and understanding him and holding on to him as Lord and Saviour. Hold fast what you have in each other as well. As the days get harder, we will need to lean on each other more. So don't underestimate what we have here at church. We need to keep growing thick and rich relationships, relationships that go beyond the surface level of how things are, but relationships that open up to others so that we can ask hard questions and receive deep encouragements. Thick and rich relationships that help us live for Jesus and not for this world. And we're going to need need to be a church that welcomes newcomers into these thick, rich relationships as well. The, The world out there has a gospel story. It has its own gospel story. But it's hurting people and will continue to hurt people. And we need to be a church with a rich, thick relationships 
with a rich and deep gospel, to remind each other that the gospel, our gospel story is so much better than what the world is offering. And hold fast to the promises of Jesus. Hold them dear to your heart. Remember that no matter what our world throws at you, no matter if they threaten to dox you or cancel you or fire you because of your convictions, they can never force you out of his presence eternally. So let us be comforted as the bad guys. Because at some point in the future, it will be revealed for who we will be revealed for who we actually are. Dearly beloved and belonging to Jesus. Remember that his name is on you. He belongs to you, and we are his. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this encouragement today. We thank you that in the face of a world which has its own gospel message, its own good news, but a news that requires us to compromise and to reject you, a news in which we are framed as the bad guys increasingly. We thank you that you speak these words of comfort and encouragement. Help us to take them to heart. Help us to remember these promises of Jesus, to remind each other of these promises, to be a part of a church which deeply holds on to these things, and to encourage those around us to trust in them, we pray that you'll help us to do this and to listen to this word of your son, Jesus, for his glory and for our joy together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, welcome back around to uh, this Q&A time together. There's uh, three questions that have popped up. Uh, so, well, they two-ish. Uh, they kind of refer to uh, two questions deal with uh, the same topic. So let me have a look at that one. Uh, Hasid, we're wondering a couple of things. With the key of David, you said it means that he has the authority of God. What is it referring to with the doors that are open or shut? And in verse 8, what is the open door that is set before them? So I think the key of David reference, the same thing that um, it's almost like word for word in Isaiah 22, 22. Um, it has this kind of idea of if you hold the keys, then you can open and close the doors. And with the authority of God, you open and close them. So if you open a door no one else can close it by their own power because God's authority has been behind the opening of that door in the same, in, and in the reverse as well. So in verse 8, when Jesus says, I have the keys of David and I open a door, I set an open door before you, um, there's a few things it could mean. I think some people think it could mean uh, ministry opportunities. I think Paul speaks about an open door of opportunity to speak and evangelize. I think within the context here, it's this metaphoric open door of relationship and of being his. Uh, and so in the, the way, in the sense that the Jews in the synagogue had shut out the Christians, Jesus has left the door open for them to be, to be in relationship with him. And I think it's this door connected to the temple, his presence uh, with his father. So I think that's what's going on uh, in particular in context uh, here with the open doors. Uh, verse 11, no one... Uh, do these things. Let me just read verse 11 quickly. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Uh, can you clarify what this means? Does it mean that we can lose our salvation by the works of someone else? I think the answer to that is no. I think it's very similar to last week when we heard Jesus say, uh, hold fast and I will not blot out 
your name from the book of life. Uh, it's got a it's kind of very similar vibe here in verse 11. I don't think it's to say that uh, someone can lose their salvation. I think it's a reassurance that holding fast uh, always meets with the uh, result of receiving the crown. Uh, but if they don't hold fast, if they walk away from the faith, then it's as though they weren't believers. They didn't have the crown in the first place. So I think it's a verse of reassurance that holding on ends results in the crown. Uh, would, there, would there have been those who left the church in Philadelphia due to the immense external pressures of the imperial cult? And around how many? Do the, does the Bible and historical text speak of this at all? Uh, I don't know. Um, I know that Philadelphia... I, I, I read somewhere of uh, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia church in um, conversation, like writing letters to Smyrna, and so there's some historical documents there. So when, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we mentioned uh, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna who got martyred, we know roughly around the same time Philadelphia was going through some troubles as well, the same sort of troubles. I don't know the exact details of who walked away and, and, um, and how many. Uh, and the Bible itself doesn't shed any further light on it as well. So I guess in some ways, because it doesn't, we're just left with the encouragements or the warnings uh, within this book and whether or not we will hear what is being said and respond to it. That seems to be the end of the question, so thank you very much for the questions that have been sent in. I hope that was helpful. Uh, again, another plug for the Easter Sunday get-together, sle.church forward slash Easter, uh, to register for your spot there. Please uh, sign up to that. And don't forget, too, there's a bookstall here that you can chat to me about any books or things that you'd like uh, to read, uh, or you know, there's a little helpful booklet on the book of Revelation as well. Uh, that covers some of these things um, that we've been walking through. So feel free to come and chat to me about good books uh, to read too. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.